Our text this morning is Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. With this text, we get the third and last depiction of the final battle. As well, we get the reality, no longer a preview, but the reality of the final judgment. And so we'll look at the text under the two headings that are there on an outline on the back inside page of your bulletin, the judgment of Satan and the great white throne judgment. So first then, the judgment of Satan. Revelation 20 verse 7 says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. We argued last week that the thousand years is a symbolic number for the whole church age. And during that period, the faithfully departed saints and the martyrs partake of what John called the first resurrection, the spiritual resurrection. And they are seen as reigning with Christ in heaven. We looked at that last week. Remember, we said that Jesus says to us expressly that the binding of Satan, which we looked at last week, the thousand-year period, was something that came with his earthly ministry. Something that began then. He bound the strong man, and he began plundering his house. And this binding of Satan did two things. It prevented his deception of the nations in the same manner that he deceived them before the Lord's coming. And secondly, and this is most significant here, The binding of Satan prohibited his deceiving the nations so as to gather them together for the final battle. That is the particular focus of his restraint. And and we mentioned that last week, but one of the ways this is confirmed is that here, when the binding period is over, the thousand years is over, that is precisely what Satan does. He deceives the nations He gathers them for this final battle. And so if you look at verse 8, it tells us, after his release, he comes out, he deceives the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle. Now I'll make an aside here about our general interpretive approach to this passage. We said that this final battle has been seen three different times. It's always the same battle. And John is basically telling us the same thing from a different angle. If we didn't believe this, we'd have to ask ourselves something like this. Where did all these nations come from who are now being deceived by Satan? They were all destroyed in chapter 19. Right? We already saw the final battle. Every nation was destroyed when Christ rides forth on his white horse in chapter 19. In fact, the whole Babylonian system was destroyed in chapter 16, 17, and 18. Now we have a thousand-year period where Satan is bound, supposedly, on some interpretations, and at the end of it, all of a sudden, bingo, all the nations are ready to be deceived again. These kinds of readings, which are popular, simply don't work. They are not paying close enough attention to the structure of the whole book. So it's important to get that, because it verifies our basic fundamental approach to the text. One has to wonder, on millennial views, where the saints are raised and reign in in earth for a thousand years with Jesus physically in Jerusalem and Satan completely bound, 
how, at the end of that period, when he's unbound, he ends up deceiving every single nation, as great as the sand on the seashore, the text says, and bringing them against this camp of the saints. So we're not reading the text that way. We're saying this is a depiction of the third and final battle that has already been depicted twice. In fact, the word for battle here actually has the article in the original language. It's the battle. The same battle which has previously been depicted twice. And we saw previously that the final battle of Israel against her foes, which is depicted in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that's in the background of all of these battles. John is drawing on this Ezekiel language when he, when he looks at the fall of Babylon, when he looks at the fall of the beast and the false prophet, and here when he looks at the fall of Satan and death. And that's made explicit here in the reference to Gog and Magog. They come from these Ezekiel chapters. They're real ancient kingdoms, and they're Ezekiel's terms for Israel's final enemies. And so John is universalizing them here, applying them to all the nations at the four corners of the earth for the climactic battle. And so verse 8, verse 8 tells us that these nations or kings are innumerable. Notice this, they're innumerable. They're like the sand of the sea, he says. That's a metaphor we know. These, these are the, this is the anti-Abrahamic seed. You are Abraham's offspring and seed, and you are like the sand of the seashore in number. These enemies of God at the end are also innumerable. And so John continues alluding to Ezekiel here in verse 9. He says, they marched across the breadth of the earth. The same exact language he uses in Ezekiel. They surrounded the camp of the saints, the city God loves. So the camp of God's people. The beloved city are just two ways of describing the worldwide church. This is not an assault on the literal city of Jerusalem. It can't be for a dozen reasons that we've structurally gone over in the whole, church, in the whole book. The, the, the language camp of the saints draws on the book of Numbers. right? And Israel camped in a certain pattern. They assembled in the wilderness as an army engaged for holy war. And both of these themes, Israel as a wilderness community and Israel as a holy army, John has drawn on again and again and again extensively throughout the book of Revelation. So again, remember, our interpre- if you just jump right into this chapter and you just give a quick prima facie reading of the text, you might say, well, that's got to be Jerusalem. But we have to read the whole book. The beloved city is the same reality as the measured and protected temple in chapter 11. The church there was seen as trampled in her outer courts, safe in her heavenly union with Christ. The beloved city is the woman guarded in the wilderness in chapter 12. She's the saints who, though they are killed, are seen as reigning in Zion in chapter 14. The beloved city of which you are a part, is the earthly manifestation of the Jerusalem from above, which is about to descend right after our text in chapter 21. In fact, if you want to step back and ask yourself, what's the big picture of what John's doing? 
He's just clearing the enemies out of the way so he can get to what he wants to get to, which is the glorious descent of the new Jerusalem from above at the beginning of chapter 21. And to that new Jerusalem, all overcomers, all conquerors have been promised entry. And so here we see that what the demonic powers, what Satan and the principalities want, what they seek is nothing less than the annihilation of the church. Right? The church is not just opposed by what the, what the 19th century German theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher called her cultured despisers. You are opposed by an array of invisible principalities and powers that seek your annihilation and your destruction. And this has been prevented, this last international conspiracy, by this restrictive binding of Satan. But at the very end of history, because that's where we are in the text, he is loosed and this final assault will come. So it's important here to get this point. History ends in this manner, on any millennial view, on any millennial view, Satan gathers an innumerable host, armies from the ends of the earth to make war on the saints and is destroyed because what happens next is the great white throne judgment. This is how history ends on any view. So notice verse 9. This battle here is over before it begins. It's like the Exodus, which is why John often describes this stuff in Exodus language. The church stands, the church waits, the church watches, the Lord fights for us and delivers us. It says, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. This again is figurative language for a total judgment, and it anticipates the coming lake of fire. Well, how do we know we're at the end of history here? Well, because verse, well, for many reasons, for big structural reasons, but verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning fire where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. The lake of fire, of course, is a metaphor for the, this dreadful reality of a, of a coming final judgment. I mean, Satan, after all, is a spiritual being. He doesn't have a body. He can't suffer from fire physically. But nevertheless, it's a picture of the torment of being separated from God. Again, showing that all of these scenes have the same judgment in view, the text says, Satan joins the beast and the false prophet, who were also thrown into the lake of fire. Right? That's John saying, hey, what's happening here is the same thing that happened before the millennium text in chapter 19. And before that, in the destruction of Babylon. So, again, to step back for a moment. The whole satanic trinity, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, parodies of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they are now finally judged and defeated. And so, the second point, then, is the great white throne judgment. So what happens when these battles depicted in Revelation are ended? This is what happens. This scene. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The whole scene here is dependent on Daniel 7. Now we've said that a lot in this series. 
Uh, it's really difficult to understand the book of Revelation without spending some time with Daniel, and especially Daniel chapter 7. John is drawing on it repeatedly. The throne is white to symbolize victory and vindication. But it's also white because in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days who sits on the throne is depicted as having white hair and white garments. And so what's in view here is the purity and the wisdom, the aged wisdom of the judge, if you will. And the one who sits on the throne is first and foremost the Ancient of Days, God himself, Yahweh, the God of Israel. But we've seen repeatedly in Revelation that the risen Jesus now shares his Father's throne. So this is a a magnificent scene, an overwhelming scene, this great white throne. And verse 11 continues, And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. This happened at the end of the seal judgments as well, which we said was was a picture of the end. Again, John is saying to careful readers, you will remember this this earth and sky fleeing away because it happened in the final seal judgment as well. And the seals run up to the end. No place was found for them. So fearsome is the presence of God on his throne that the creation itself flees away because it must prepare to give way to the descent of a new heavens and a new earth at the beginning of chapter 21. The whole created order flees. In verses 12 and 13 indicate that it is here, at the very end of history, in accord with the plain teaching of the rest of Scripture, that the general resurrection of all, believers and unbelievers, occurs. That, beloved, is a real marker. Like, you may not follow all of this. Perhaps you're confused by some of it. That's understandable. If you can get this simple point, you can rid yourself of a lot of millennial zaniness. And the simple point is this. There is one general resurrection of all people, believers and unbelievers, at the end of the age, coincident with the appearance of Jesus Christ. Get that right, and you can be orthodox on the rest. The rest of your end-time stuff will probably be orthodox. So, and that's confirmed here. Take the first half of verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, the realm of the dead, uh, give up the dead that are in them. So what's the point here? The point is simply that all the dead are given back or given up and raised for the final judgment. All the realms of the dead are evacuated here. The sea and death and Hades would represent those who were buried on land. Everyone is raised in this text. And in verse 12, John sees the dead. Great, small, significant and insignificant. All the dead standing before this throne. Again, this is in accordance with all the rest of Scripture. Daniel 12, John 5, Acts 17, Acts 24. There's one general bodily resurrection of all the dead. In fact, all the creeds of the church confess this that I'm aware of. 
Certainly the ancient creeds and certainly our creedal confessions in the Reformed tradition confess this. And this is confirmed yet again by the fact that there are two sets of books in view in this text. Or, or more precisely, there's, there's, a, there's one set of books, plural, and there's the book, singular, of life. So in verse 12, all are now raised, they're standing before the white throne, and the books are open. This is part of why this throne is so dreadful. The books are the books of all the human deeds. By the way, the books also appear in, Daniel, in the scene in Daniel 7. John is drawing on that scene. But it's God keeps track. He records. He sees. And then he rectifies. It is a momentous thing to be a human being. It places us in a situation of infinite gravity. It turns out there are only two choices. Either being a human being matters to God in its details, in every careless word, in the secrets of our hearts. Either God takes us seriously as moral creatures and will will provide a forum whereby he rectifies things, or he doesn't. There's no stopping ground between it is a thing of infinite gravity to be a human being and human beings are just cosmic debris. There's books and they've been written in and God writes and he records and he examines. It's a dreadful thing to be before this throne and to have your history narrated in that book. But there's another book which is opened, and this is the book of life, and this book is our refuge. This is the refuge of the righteous. No one is going to stand based on what's written in that first set of books. This is the gracious registry of God's elect. Nevertheless, notice this in the text. The judgment is for all, for believers and unbelievers, a judgment according to deeds. Notice verse 12. The dead were judged according to what they had done. Verse 13, again, according to what we have done. So election, having one's name in the book of life, we've seen this throughout Revelation as well. And again, this is in accordance with the wider teaching of Holy Scripture. Election is unto holiness. Election is demonstrated by faithfulness. One of the most lovely ways John puts this is in chapter 17, where he says, um, those who are faithful, the chosen ones, he said, are those who are faithful and who are with the Lamb and who follow him wherever he goes. That's what it means to be chosen. So, The history, if you will, in the Reformed tradition and in the history of the church where election is taken seriously and understood properly is a history which produces vigorous engagement with the world, with obedience, with life, and with culture. It doesn't produce a kind of uh, deadening uh, self-confidence or self-righteousness or presumptuousness. Election, the elect, follow 
The elect follow the lamb hard. They're with the lamb wherever he goes. That's how you know they're the elect. So that that being said, the emphasis in this text is not on the vindication of believers. All are present in this judgment. But John is going to depict the future of believers in the final two chapters of the book. Here he's trying to do two things right here. Verse 14, first he says, death and Hades, that's death and the realm of the dead, were thrown into the lake of fire. The last enemy. Death is the last enemy. Now joins Satan, the beast, the false prophet in the lake of fire. This is what the resurrection of Jesus from the dead means. Right? As, as John Dunn puts it in his poem, Death be not proud. Death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. There's no stopping point either between the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which destroys death, and complete cosmic meaninglessness. I know lots of people in their lives stop somewhere in between, but there's no exits. There's no, there's no rest areas. Either Jesus is raised from the dead and death shall be destroyed, or nothing matters. This is the Christian hope. This is why it's at the back of your Bible. I was telling someone this week, I think, uh, that to not engage the book of Revelation well as a Christian is to like have a novel in your possession of which you never read the ending. And it turns out a lot of people in the church are that way. I mean, they kind of know how it ends. Do you ever read a good novel and you get to the end, you read the ending, you realize, oh, I have to go back and read some stuff in the middle in the beginning. Right? You get to Revelation, you realize, oh, I need to read Ezekiel and Daniel and Exodus. That, that should happen. But in any case, this is the hope. And this judgment in the lake of fire is the, the end of verse 14 says it's the second death. We looked at this last week. The first death is physical death. The second death is separation from God. Finally, you get this remarkable statement in verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice this. The judgment is according to works. And yet you could summarize that judgment this way. If anyone's name was not written in the book, he would fail the judgment. The same judgment which is according to deeds, according to these books in which records are kept, is now here a judgment according to names and rendered in accordance with the presence or the absence of one's name in this singular book of life. And so John is saying something like this when he refers to this book of life. He's saying if we reject Christ, what remains for us is a pure, strict, legal judgment according to works. That's what you will face, and that's a judgment no one survives. But there's an assertion here in the text, and and it's crucial. It's crucial. It says that while judgment is according to works, it, it is the electing grace of God which will be the crucial factor even in that judgment. That's why there's another book called the Book of Life. So this is often difficult for folks to grasp. Judgment is according to works, and yet the electing grace of God will be decisive. 
Believers must and they will have a general correspondence between their works and their confession. That means we will not be allied with the beast. But it doesn't mean that we could survive a strict judgment according to works apart from Jesus Christ. The book of life is a refuge for us. Why? Because the text says this book is the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain and who purchased us with his blood. And thus our deeds, they're absolutely necessary, but even our deeds have to be cleansed and perfected and presented to God through the blood of this Lamb. I I know I've used the example before. It's the only good illustration I have of this. I'll share it again. The situation is a lot like parents who have, say, a four-year-old daughter who paints them a picture. So she paints the picture. This is her work. She brings it to the parents. And the parents don't say, this is awful work. What are you, Jackson Pollock or something? What are you trying to do? This stuff is splattered all over the place. This is the worst painting I've ever seen. It doesn't meet any professional aesthetic standards. No, the parents accept the work. They celebrate the work, even for its defects. And then they put it up on the refrigerator with with a magnet, right? Even though, objectively speaking, it's really not very good, right? Even if the daughter's 19, it's not, probably not even that good, right? right? So that's what God does with our works. You have to have works. You have to have paint on the paper. There has to be a painting. That's, there has to be some kind of correspondence between your confession and your life. But it's not going to be very good. But nevertheless, it's real. And then God in Christ cleanses and accepts and protects you because you're his daughter or his son, and he accepts your good works. So that's what's happening in all of these scenes. And so, to conclude, the text sets before us two great truths. First, there's a a final satanic assault on the church involving an innumerable host. At the end of time, under any millennial position. But it shall fail... And the principalities and powers and death itself will be judged. And second, we do stand before a coming judgment and evaluation according to our works. Books about our lives are going to be open. And so we face that with confidence in the gospel of the Lamb, but also the text is saying, be zealous for good deeds. Right? You have time to make your painting better. You can clean up some stuff. In one sense, that's what, a, that's what the weekly worship of covenant renewal before the face of God is. It's God handing you back your painting saying, I think you can do maybe a little better. You can fix this painting. You can touch this up a little bit. Election is unto righteous action. And so, along with the resurrection of the dead along with the destruction of all these beastly powers, along with the vindication of the martyrs, we watch and we pray and we long for this scene, the destruction of the principalities and powers, Satan himself and death itself. We join our prayers to the martyrs. When you get up in the morning and you ask yourself what you want to happen today, this scene should be at the top of your list. 
I once told a friend of mine in Tennessee, I said, any day on which the resurrection of the dead does not occur is less than a fully good day. Right? Any day on which this scene does not occur is a day we're still waiting. We're still pilgrims. We're still longing. We're still mortal. And we're still subject to temptation and to sin. Yes, it might be a magnificent day on many accounts. I'm not trying to be someone who denies the goodness of days. But they're not this day. So you write this across the top of your morning to-do list. You've got that little to-do list. Maybe it's in your head. Maybe it's somewhere. At the top of that to-do list is we are praying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And we're asking ourselves, we're seeking to make our painting better. We want our deeds to withstand this fire. And that means we have to stretch and increase our efforts at charity and faithful service. Especially, I think, our Lord teaches us in Matthew 25. It's how we treat the least of Jesus' brethren that's going to be the sign of whether our names are in that book of life or not. So pray for then, work for, and rejoice in the coming future. Amen.